I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with a Deal, and today our guest is Dean Firth, the beverage director for the Nakazawa restaurants in New York, Washington, and Los Angeles. Dean, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, David. Your job, like those of lawyers and bankers, involves a heavy dose of customer service, and we're going to talk about how you go about reading customers and building and strengthening client relationships. And of course, the summer means also summer associate programs at law firms and banks. And that involves lots of expense account meals for law students and B-school students, which can be intimidating. And so Dean's going to offer some guidance to those listeners on how to navigate a wine or sake list. So with that, Dean, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into hospitality. Absolutely. So I grew up on the Upper West Side in a native New Yorker and studied film in college. And that led me to need to supplement that early career with some restaurant work. So I initially fell into it, worked my way up from being a busboy up to a food runner through being a server at several restaurants and that found me at Barbalude in 2010, where I was really first exposed to serious Burgundy and Rhone wines and cold California wines for the first time and able to taste them in rapid volume on a nightly basis and fell in love with wine as, as a whole and simultaneously was building a palate for myself. And that led me to take my uh, first sommelier position at Commerce Restaurant, the uh, original location that has uh, unfortunately, unfortunately since closed. After that, went on to Boulay for about two years. And then my first beverage director position was at Bettany, another restaurant that has since closed, but it's my uh, first experience playing with a program. And that there led me to Sushi Nakazawa, where I've been curating the beverage programs for just short of six years now. So what do you enjoy about being a sommelier and working on the floor? And how is that different from being a beverage director? It's a, it's a dynamic position. I mean, it still involves being a floor sommelier and the, the service aspect of it, the, the guest facing hospitality. But behind the scenes, it's a lot of logistic organizing, sourcing wines, doing you know, P&Ls and financial accounting, of course, and you know, generally being hands for anything in the restaurant at all. So it definitely keeps you simulated and engaged in many different ways throughout the day. Even those days can't stretch very long. But in that, it's uh, something that's always kept me interested and feeling energized at work. How do you think about the business differently in your current role as compared to just working the floor as a sommelier and at least being able to go home at the end of a service? Sure. It's a bit more of a bird's eye view or a macro view position. Having a team of floor sommeliers in both restaurants and soon to be LA is also about setting them up for service, which is, you know, again, coming down to organization and communication paying attention to trends of what is selling and what's selling out and making sure those parts of the list are staying replenished and strong. And when I'm not on the floor, they're the eyes and ears for everything that is happening. So there's a whole sommelier communication log. We have uh, emails that go out at the end of the night that keep everybody on the team on the same page and allows me to know what I need to order and be on top of when I walk in the door in the morning and and in turn sets them up for a smooth, successful service in the evening. At Bethany, the beverage program was very, very wine-focused, whereas at Nakazawa, it's more focused on sake with still a significant piece of the beverage program being wine. Tell us how you transitioned to working with sake and how you manage those challenges, because obviously it's a completely different beverage made in a different place 
than wine. Absolutely. As a sommelier, my background is in wine initially, and I spent about 10 years working in mainly French restaurants and with French heavy lists. So to transition to sake, I would, I would say was a rough one at first. I had very little remedial knowledge walking in the door of Nakazawa and a little bit of trial by fire and just learning by tasting and then you know researching what made things different and unique. But initially, my first foray into sake was while I was still at Bettany. It was essentially kind of forced upon me when we were running back the greatest hits of the restaurant when we announced we were closing to pair a sake with a Japanese-inspired dish. And at first, it was uncomfortable because I didn't really have any experience with it and wine was my comfort zone. But in tasting a few different things up against the dish, found one that really was one of those eye-opening aha moments of pairing. And that was my first experience discovering something like that. And then flash forward to Nakazawa, where I walked into a restaurant that had about 75 different sakes and I hadn't tasted any of them and I was expected to convey information about them to guests. So it's a very, very steep learning curve and a lot of flashcarding and tasting at first to really get my head around it. But at this point, we, yes, do sell about three times as much sake compared with wine. And at any point, have between around 120 to 150 different selections for sake and have been hovering around 600 selections for wine for a few years now. So in a sense, that gives us many different options for guests, of course. And I also believe that, you know, being that sake is for many a, a very new category and a very tough language barrier to navigate. That you know, having such a strong and deep wine list, in a sense, validates the expansive sake we have and promotes conversation between our sommeliers and the guests. How do you go about communicating the value of either the wine or the sake to customers who may not be familiar with it? It all starts with a conversation and... Say the vast majority of guests walking into Sushi Nakazawa do have very limited experience with sake as a beverage. And, you know, we again have bottles that are around $50 on our list and they go up to bottles that are in the five digits. And the fact that there are both, and especially from the same producer having numerous different bottlings and really fleshing out the selections there as, as you would with a burgundy producer of having all of their single vineyards and different vintages of those vineyards. And that's the same kind of platform we've been trying to give to sake and some of these more heralded brewers from Japan. So having many different bottlings across a different price range also promotes conversation. What are the differences? Why is this one more expensive? What is it like? And from a base standpoint, you can just talk about rice polishing to start. You know, just to be a Junmai Daiginjo, you have to polish 50% of the rice you're using at minimum. So to that end, if you were Again, let's go back to Burgundy, throwing out 50% of your grapes before you produce a single bottle of wine, it would probably increase the price a bit. So when you're getting to these competition-grade sakes that have micro-polishing ratios, you're discarding so much of your base product before you're even beginning the process of fermentation that there, the fact that you're able to transform becomes often a just tiny little pearl of rice and starch into these lengthy, developed, elegant, and expressive beverages. So it's just finding counterpoints with people and what their experiences, if there are styles of wine or regions that they like. And sake is, of course, a unique thing, but there are for sure uh, ways that it matches up and can have parallels to particular styles of wine that people like. So really just is about having a conversation and trying to make an educated decision on what someone will like if they're coming in blind. When you're on the floor, how do you go about reading customers? How do you put them at ease? And how do you deal with a customer who's unhappy or even difficult? I mean, it's around 100 people coming in every single night of the week. And 
you know, it can be a hundred different experiences. I mean, to gauge guests, again, just try to get a, a snap reaction of, you know, whether they've been to omakase restaurants before, what they are interested in drinking. You can kind of tell if somebody's intently digging through the wine list that they might be specifically searching for something, but, you know, you can also at the same time tell if someone's a little bewildered and overwhelmed. So, you know, 40 plus page wine list, which is not the largest in the world, but definitely has some meat and substance to it. So we can kind of see based on how someone's reaction to that and how they're handling it. For one hand, I personally don't try to make assumptions about people's physical appearance and how they're dressed. You know, I've had people walk into the restaurants in sweatpants and a t-shirt and spend over $10,000 on burgundies and sake. So people, I think, like to dine out in a little more relaxed dress code in general and still are looking to have many different types of dining experiences. So again, it comes down to just having a conversation and just getting a quick read on people and whether they're comfortable or not. And, you know, just offering the guidance of just knowing that they're in a, a restaurant with a very capable staff and that they can kind of trust us to lead them in the right direction. I think discussing budget is something that's important and to not have money be a taboo thing. I think it can be very uncomfortable, but to just be kind of straightforward about what sort of price range you want to keep in, explaining what the range of the list is and also helping hone in there. And I would say we generally don't have too many unhappy guests, fortunately. Again, we can sell some of the blue chip wine and sakes on the planet, but we also have many bottles on our list that are value focused and put lesser known regions on a pedestal and give them a little more of a spotlight. And I'd like to think that there's something for everybody on the list. How does a restaurant experience differ for first time or infrequent visitors and regulars? And how does a customer become a regular at your restaurant or any restaurant? I mean, we were lucky at this point, you know, we're about uh, 10 years deep as a restaurant being open, uh, that we have a number of long-term regulars, uh, many of whom are specifically beverage focused. You know, the fish does change seasonally in terms of what's available, but the overall format of the omakase and the meal itself does not change really. So we do have people that are coming back and, you know, specifically asking for new sake and at the premium level. Uh, the guest that specifically comes in and wants to drink uh, pitchers and first growths, and we have those wines available for him. There was uh, a guest that got really excited about all the uh, you know cornos and Code roti in our, our northern Rhone section. Number of white Burgundy and Champagne drinkers. So there's really continuing to provide a, a dynamic list with great options and keeping things new, so that every time they come in, there's something new and exciting for them to experience. And a, a very loyal following with with a number of them and for specific types of beverage. So it's, you know, about listening to your guests. And if there are certain things specifically they're, they're looking for, you know, putting the effort in to search for it and acquire it. And that goes a long way for people just personally shopping for them so they can enjoy something the next time we're at the restaurant. And that's really what our service comes down to as a sommelier is just uh, guiding them through the best beverage experience possible and, and bringing really special things to the table. And there are many great omakase restaurants in the city, but we take pride on having a serious beverage program and that does attract the crowd. The first Nagazawa in the United States was in New York and you subsequently expanded to Washington and Los Angeles. Talk about that transition, your role in it, and how those three markets differ in terms of what diners may expect or what the restaurants feel like to you when you're on the floor. Sure. I mean, they, they have their own personalities and do serve the same meal, but are their own separate entities for sure. 
say New York is at the risk of sounding arrogant. It's become you know, an institution for omakase restaurants. And uh, I jokingly call the, the Balthazar of, of sushi because we're so consistently busy. Washington, D.C., on the other hand, we uh, we opened in the Trump International Hotel in 2018, which was a very challenging, if not the most challenging location to open a new restaurant in the United States at that time. We're now in a Waldorf Astoria, which interestingly has significantly increased business over the last year. The ownership changed there. So that's uh, definitely seen an increase in volume. And then D.C., when we first opened there, there was sake available, but it wasn't very widely established, I'd say, as it is a couple of years later. I think DC has seen a sake explosion in the recent past and kind of had a finger on the pulse of that for the last few years. So that's been exciting to watch. And then, you know, LA, we're also incredibly excited because, you know, it has such a deep Japanese food culture already and, you know, is where sake comes into the United States first before it goes anywhere else. So we're looking forward to being part of that community and, you know, bringing what we do to the table. Talk a little bit about tea. As I understand it, you have a tea program at Nakazawa as well. Yes. We work with a really incredible vendor called Kettle Tea, based here in New York, run by a friend of mine, Zach Mangan. And he has been importing some really incredible micro-production teas straight from Japan for a number of years now. And at any point, you know, we have between seven to 12 of those teas on our list and really captures a really incredible array of styles and flavors ranging from buckwheat teas to different types of senchas, different types of uh, gyokuros, which are shade-grown teas. And also was getting access to some prize-winning teas from nationwide Japanese competitions. Sometimes only five fifty gram bags of those teas are coming to the United States, and we're lucky to get access to some of them. Was there a particular night when you're working as a sommelier or even an interaction or two with a customer early in your career that really convinced you that this was what you wanted to do? Or was it more just the overall experience and excitement of working in a restaurant? I'd say I discovered working in restaurants that the pace and the energy of it was really attractive to me. I didn't initially know that wine would be the path I followed with it. But I did have a few, uh, you know, again, back working at Barbalude, single wines that I tasted that just kind of knocked me back and gave me the bug, as they say. And I never really looked back from there. But I'd say I'd be tasting a 1999 August Clap Cornas out of Magnum back in 2010. It was one of those moments that a few regulars at that restaurant that, again, were following the restaurant for its wine program and for people that I could you know, at least get my training wheels on with talking about wine and feeling safe doing it and not being intimidated. And I've also just been fortunate to have a few really great mentors throughout my career that in different ways, I think have uh, complimented my skill set and given me a chance to, to do what I do. So it's all been just kind of an inter-team and client support throughout the year that's been continually encouraging and made me stick with it. You went to Japan for the first time in January. Tell us about that trip what you learned, just what the experience was like for you. Absolutely. It was an amazing trip. I was invited there to judge uh, sake from Asahi Shuzo, which makes uh, Dasai sake. So I was invited to visit their brewery in Yamaguchi Prefecture, which is in the southern part of Honshu, the main island of Japan, and then returned to Tokyo to judge the, the sake in front of a panel with a few other sommeliers from around the world. And from there, I essentially plotted a three-week trip of visiting my favorite breweries that we've been working with very strongly at Nakazawa since I've been on board and 
And again, just trying to finally have those experiences that you can't recreate just by reading a book or tasting something, just um, really need to experience firsthand. So um, I kept that in mind, in addition to just being uh, geographically logical in terms of my trip. So I flew to Tokyo, went to Yamaguchi that night, saw the brewery the next morning, flew to Tokyo later that day. The next day, had the, the competition and judged the sake. And then from there, uh, went to Aichi Prefecture to visit Komoshi Bito Kuheji, and then saw their rice fields in Hyogo Prefecture the next day, saw two other sake producers there, went up to Ishikawa, Kyoto for the weekend, down to Wakayama Prefecture, back to Ishikawa, and then up the coast into Toyama, Niigata, went skiing in Niigata for three days, which was great as well, and then over to Miyagi Prefecture and back to Tokyo. And over that time, saw 12 different sake breweries, and you know, essentially was able to experience each region and was more or less getting on a train every morning and making a trip the equivalent of a few states away to see the next place and experience their sake. So it was an aggressive schedule, but an incredible trip and very enlightening. And um, I've been able to take the stories of those experiences back into conveying uh, what's special about the sake to guests on the floor in New York. So really impactful and was able to taste a lot of sake that isn't imported to the United States, which is surprisingly a lot of it. Just a number of producers that didn't even know existed and sake from producers I've been working with that I didn't know existed. And just in general, really eye-opening, incredible experience. I know this is hard because it was, a, I believe, a, a three-week trip and you saw a ton of producers. But was there a, a visit or an experience on that trip that really stood out in your mind or was particularly powerful for you? That was a very tough question. Um, in the way that I curated it, it was to visit producers that were very markedly different in style. I mean, the standouts of the trip, the first day seeing Dasai and just how massive and, and modernized their facilities are, but how that's juxtaposed with really doing things with by sense. They still have a whole team of artisans that every day get together and taste the sake to make sure that their, their batches are up to quality. And they kind of eschew the traditional role of toji or head brewer to, again, have this kind of a group mentality of how they run things. So that was really interesting to me. I visited uh, Kuheiji the next day, who are notable for being the only sake producer that also owns a winery and produces wine in Burgundy. So they have this more kind of terroir-focused idea of sake and do produce what they consider three different Grand Cru sites which are rice patties in different soils and elevations and aspects and yields uh, you know, sake that's made with the same rice, polished the same way, but three very markedly different expressions. That was a fascinating part of the trip. Visited Kenbishi and Kikuhime, both who are specialists in aging sake, but in two very different ways. And that was back to back, one day to the other. So, I don't know, Pakaisan, I was visiting them in the middle of a snowstorm. Um, they specialize in making a sake that's aged in a room incubated with thousands of pounds of snow. So, that was a very uh, poetic, fitting moment visiting that producer and you know it's all around just um, experienced incredible hospitality and really fascinating level of precision in, in making these beverages and just the level of dedication and, and passion it takes to pull it off year in and year out as i said at the beginning of the podcast we're in summer associate season which means a lot of expense account dining for law students and business school students who generally aren't going to have the budget for that kind of dining when they're in school how can those folks feel more comfortable in a place like Nakazawa or the equivalent that would serve French or Italian food? 
And how should they go about navigating a wine or sake list, which can obviously be really intimidating if you don't know a lot, which many guests do not. Right. I think, again, it comes down to your staff and their training. And do you pride yourself at Sushi Nakazawa, despite it being, you know, an omakase restaurant, which there is this association of it being, you know, kind of a, a rigid, stiff environment and, you know, can be cold depending on the restaurants. You know, we're very uh, warm, engaging style of service and it's very interactive with, you know, both the chefs taking care of you in front of you and, and the service staff itself. But using that as a resource, I mean, we have guests that, have never done omakase before, have never really eaten sushi outside of, you know, what you might get take out at the grocery store. And they ask a million questions to the chef and that's all part of the services, you know, being engaging and in a sense educational for people. And to the same end, we have a sommelier team that is able to guide you through what can be a large intimidating list for people that aren't super well-versed in beverage. Very few people have seen over the last five years walk in and know how to get through that sake section without at least asking a couple of questions. Although there, you know, I've seen people with more and more brand recognition, but again, just don't be scared to ask. I mean, the whole experience is put together for it to be a show and for you to be part of it. And that doesn't mean, you know, sit there silently and just don't participate. I mean, it's, uh, it's the most fun when we're having conversations with guests and touching the table a couple of times and. Again, starting to build those relationships of people that do hopefully become regulars of ours at some point. When you're not at one of your restaurants, what are your favorite places to eat in New York and, and around the country? My favorite places to eat and drink around the country. Or, I mean, New York, we're blessed to have an endless amount of really high quality restaurants at, at every level of quality, price points, and really every cuisine. I'd say a few of my favorites in going to recently, you know, Brooklyn heavy, but I've uh, been going to Crew, which is a really fantastic Thai restaurant in Greenpoint, and uh, also to Rule of Thirds, which is a really excellent, you could say elevated izakaya uh, sake bar, also in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Uh, they have one of the more fun sake selections in the city, in my opinion, and food is, is absolutely excellent. Also fan of Sake Bar Satsuko in the East Village, which uh, also falls into that, that izakaya sake bar line. Also, a huge fan of uh, Atto Boy and Atto Mix, which was fortunate to dine at recently. Dean, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus. <laughs> <laughs>